We are uh, in our Christmas Chronicles. If you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to make your way to Matthew chapter 1. And uh, we're going to be looking at the family of Christmas and the family of, of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's known as the genealogy, which probably isn't the most exciting parts of Matthew to read. But we're going to see how all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for our teaching, training, rebuking, and, and correcting of righteousness. Um, thinking about the family of Christ, and I can remember the first time in my life where I felt or thought that I had won an argument with my mom. <clears throat> the key word there is, I thought. Um, it was Christmas time, and growing up at, in a pastor's house, Christmas time is always interesting because uh, my, my kids and Jamie have, have started to recognize this. You know, everything kind of centers around when is the church events going on and you have to be there. So my dad being a pastor, you know, that's kind of how our Christmas travels were regulated. Um, but we'd always make sure every year as a child growing up, we would visit my mom's side of the family. Uh, it'd always be at Granny and Granddad's uh, farm that they have uh, still, and, and uh, we would visit my dad's side of the family. Now, my dad's side of the family would typically change locations at times, so you never know where you're going to be. Matter of fact, um, there were times where you never knew who actually was going to show up. I didn't realize I had some cousins until I was about the age of 12, and they kind of showed up one day, and they were the same age as me or older, and I was baffled by this. You know, where did you come from? But anyway, it's kind of my dad's side of the family, and, and that's um, where this argument that I felt or thought that I'd won began to take place. We had left my, uh, my mom's side. We are heading to my dad's side who lived in uh, the St. Louis area, we were going to his older brother Harold's house and his wife's. That's where they were going to be hosting my dad's side of the family. And as a child, um, I can remember I was probably about six or seven. And, um, and you all can remember if you're around my age, you know, when you traveled as a family, there wasn't the smartphones you could play with. There wasn't the video game thing. I mean, I, I remember getting a Game Boy when I was like maybe 10. And I thought, woo, that's, that's some, I mean, that's some pretty cool stuff. But up until that point, it was, you know, the ABC, the alphabet game, you know, that's a classic still today. Um, you know, how many red cars can you see? Um, I would sometimes bring, like, G.I. Joes with me. I would get at least three. I could, I could have three, and we would have, like, this epic battle for hours in the car. And these were kind of your options when you traveled. You could look out the window, and you could just kind of watch things go by. But I remember it was nighttime, and... I must have played out my G.I. Joes, everyone must have died, and I'd listened to the radio for a while, but my mom and dad were in a conversation. And my mom was saying that, you know, we're, we are going to stop, and we're going to get something neat before we go, and we're only going to stay for a little while. We're not going to stay that long, then we're going to leave. Now, as a child, I was taken back, because this was Christmas, and I thought, we're gathering for family, and I wish I could say I had pure motives when I spoke up, um, but in my mind, I was thinking, if we're going to stop to eat, that takes time. And if we're not going to stay very long, that means less time. And what if we don't have enough time to get to the presents? And so my thought was, if I could miss out on getting presents, which at that point in time, uh, my aunts and uncles on my dad's side just thought giving money was the best thing to give for kids. And so I loved going there for Christmas. You know, I would walk out with like 80 bucks in my hand. And I was, as a six and seven year old, that's pretty awesome. So I was, you know, I may miss this. And so I piped up. And I stepped into this conversation, and as a parent, you know 
with kids, this is exactly what you want your children to do when you're having a conversation between you and your spouse. You want the kids to engage in that conversation and to give their input. And I'm realizing this more and more with my kids where we have to remind them, mommy and daddy are talking right now. You're not a part of this conversation. Do you all have that joy as well in your family or have had that joy? Yeah, so I, I engaged in this conversation and I said to my mother, Mom, how would you like it if Dad spoke that way about your family? How would you like it if he said, we're, we're going to stop before we get there, and we're not going to stay very long? And the conversation ended. Me in the back seat, man. I thought, man, Dad's going to be so proud of me. I stood up for him. I'm his boy, you know, I've, we, we let mom, we shut mom down, and I felt that I had won the argument. I felt my argument was sound. The problem was I did not realize who I was arguing with at the moment, and uh, my mom was quiet. We did not stop for supper. We went straight to my uncle's house, and we uh, waited for people to gather before we were going to eat supper together. And I didn't know how long we were going to stay, but I was pretty sure we were going to stay long enough to get presents. And so uh, I just waited. And as everyone gathered, my dad's side of the family, we prayed, which we always did. And then we were allowed to eat. And as a kid, you all know that the quicker you eat, the quicker you get to the presents. So I ran straight to the line. and It was like a buffet line. And I grabbed my plate and I started going down the little buffet line to get the different types of food and the main meat for that particular Christmas was turkey. And as I came to the turkey, I saw something I'd never seen in turkey before, that this particular turkey seemed to have a light, liquidy red gravy with it. And as I looked at that turkey, I thought, well, that's kind of odd, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that anyway. And I get ready to grab some turkey, and my mom comes up to me, grabs my arm in a way that only mothers can do in a loving way, and speaks into my ear in a tone only mothers can do in a loving way. And she says, Michael, because that's how my mom refers to me, you are not going to eat that. That is blood. The turkey had yet to be cooked. It was, it was kind of cooked, but not cooked, and so this red gravy was the blood of the turkey oozing out on the plate. And she then said this, Matter of fact, you're not going to eat anything that had to be cooked tonight. And so my meal got put down into like crackers and chips, which as a kid is really isn't something you complain about. But I can remember being very hungry by the time we left. And when we did leave, I was excited to leave because we were going to stop and get something to eat. And uh, it has become a rule of thumb any time that we get together with the Hurchins, do not eat the meat. And so when we had our Hurchin family reunion, my parents catered the reunion so that we could eat and know everything was cooked well enough to eat. Um, and I don't know about you, I don't know what your side of the family, but I'm guessing there are people in your family that um, are a little different. Does everyone have at least one group of people or one person that's just a little bit different in your family? <coughs> that is the Hurchin side of the family for me. Um, Matter of fact, I did not introduce Jamie to the Hurchin side of the family until our wedding day. <laughs> and even then, it was only a select few. 
She did not meet like the other Hurchins until after we were married because we had already said, I do. It was set in the books. You know, there's no getting out of it now. You're a part of this. And so you're, we're in this together. Um, but we've all got that side of the family where you're kind of like, uh, well, you know, they're just like that. And here's the thing. Jesus does too. Jesus has people in his family tree where you would, if you knew their history and their stories, you would be like, uh, well, yeah, just like that. Jesus' family wasn't perfect either. I don't know what that family member of yours like, is like within your family. Um, I know I have some family members that I block on Facebook because I don't want to put up with their posts. Um, I don't know if you do that. I don't know if I need prayer about that. I don't know. But... Sometimes family is different, and sometimes there's family members that are harder to get along with and harder to talk about and harder to introduce to other people, and Jesus has those as well. In the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, we are given a thing called a genealogy. It's basically the family tree. The Gospel of Matthew and Luke are the only Gospels that have the family tree of Jesus. Each have different angles to go with it because each are writing to different audiences that they're writing to. The Gospels, as a matter of fact, the scriptures of the New Testament are all letters. They're written to people or groups of people, so there's a target audience. Well, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to either Jewish believers or Jews as a whole so they can understand that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. In the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 3, we're given another genealogy to which Luke is writing to Gentile believers and Gentiles as a whole. And Luke's goal is that people can understand that Jesus, yes, is from the Jews, but he traces uh, Jesus' genealogy or family tree all the way back to Adam, who ultimately came from God, showing everyone that Jesus came to serve all people. Matthew does that as well, though it's kind of a little more difficult to to see how Matthew does that, but we're going to draw that out this morning. Luke's genealogy goes from present to past. So it starts with Jesus or Joseph and Jesus, and works its way back to Adam. Matthew's gospel takes a different approach. It goes from past to present. It begins with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and works its way to Jesus. Again, the ultimate goal is because of their target audience, who they're trying to to speak to and, and what sort of understanding they want them to have. In Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Matthew's gospel opens, and we have to keep in mind, when I say Matthew's gospel, and this isn't Matthew writing, this is the Holy Spirit guiding and directing Matthew to put these words on the page so people can understand who Jesus is, and so we can understand. But Matthew's led by the Spirit to begin the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And immediately, though we may read it as an introduction, which is what it is, what Matthew is specifically trying to do here is to grab his Jewish audience's attention. He's pulling on their heartstrings just with these simple words. The book of genealogy ties this book to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, there's a phrase that says, these are the generations of. That that phrase is used ten times in the book of Genesis. And what it does in Genesis is it sets up different sections of that book as it goes through the patriarchs. Well, Matthew, in saying the book of genealogy, he's tying this to Genesis and how God set up Israel's history, so God is doing it once again through Jesus Christ. On top of that, the word genealogy in the Greek, which is what the gospel is written in, is actually the word that we refer to as Genesis. And so it's the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings of Jesus Christ. 
And so he's pointing to the beginning, much like Luke does, but Matthew is doing it in such a way that his Jewish audience could understand. He's saying that Jesus Christ is now the new beginning. As God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, Jesus Christ is now the beginning to which God is making this new covenant, as we refer to when the Lord's Supper, and this new creation. And he says he's the son of David. <coughs> Excuse me, the son of Abraham. And it's to give this, this Jewish audience that Jesus Christ is in fact the long way Messiah that the prophets have been speaking of, to which Matthew unfolds in verses 2 through 16. Now, as Jewish people were reading this and reading the way Matthew starts, they would understand that for Jesus to be the Christ, for him to be the Messiah, there were certain credentials that he had to live out, in which Matthew delivers. He says that he is of the son of Abraham, and so that's one credential. He has to be, uh, the Messiah must be a Jew. And Matthew makes that mention in verse 2. He also must be from the tribe of Judah, which Matthew draws out in verses 2 through 3. And he has to be from a specific family of that tribe, being the, of David, which Matthew makes mention in verse 6. And so Jesus has all of these. Now, Jesus wouldn't have been the only individual that had these sort of family trees and these family lines. And that's why Matthew makes sure that we understand this language, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings of Christ, He's pointing that Jesus is something greater than just any other individual and in that he is the fleshly embodiment of deity. He is the son of God. He is equal with God. He is God in the flesh, which is what John points out in John chapter 1 in the opening of his gospel. And so all these are tying together. And you may be familiar with the genealogy. Who grew up with New King James? New King James. So you know the begats? And so when I read through the genealogy and it says Abraham is the father of Isaac, you're more familiar with Abraham begat Isaac. The word begat means to father or belong to. And so it's basically saying that Isaac came from, belonged to Abraham. And what Matthew does in verses 2 through 16 is he draws this line from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And it's this begat line or he came from. He's ultimately saying Jesus came from Abraham. He came from the father of the Jews. And so this would be the, for the Jewish people to understand, this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been told about. But he does something else. Jump in verse 17 of Matthew real quick. <coughs> in verse 17, he says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The number 14 has biblical relevance. The number 14 is the numeric value of David. And so in the midst of this genealogy, Matthew is pointing to Jesus' royal line, that he is the king, he is the high king. But also in the midst of this, he's talking, he's giving the Jewish audience a way to remember this genealogy and putting it in 14 generations. There are obviously other people involved in this family, but the number 14 is a double usage of seven, which represents perfection and holiness. Matthew most likely is led to use this so that when people hear this, believers in particular, and they're witnessing to Jewish people, they can go through this genealogy in such a memorized fashion that they can point to Jesus. In other words, this genealogy was a witnessing tool to Jewish people. <coughs> it was to point, excuse me, point Jesus to Abraham the, the father of the Jews, and how he is the Messiah. So Jewish believers would use this with their Jewish brothers and sisters 
as a witnessing tool, much like we use gospel tracts or the ABCs or things like that. So Matthew begins with this witnessing tool, all for the understanding that Jesus is the Christ. The word Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saved, and the word Christ means anointed or Messiah. So Matthew's making it very clear who this Jesus is. But he does something very strange within the genealogy. And as I talked about some of my family members that are kind of odd, Matthew brings up some of Jesus' family members very odd. And one thing Matthew does is he mentions five women within this genealogy. Now, women were not always left out of a genealogy. There are some occurrences in the Old Testament where there you can find them. But for Matthew to bring up five women in a Jewish genealogy for a Jewish audience should raise some alarm, particularly who these women were. So what Matthew does is he mentions five women that have a very questionable background. In verse 3, he mentions a woman by the name of Tamar. In verses 5, a woman by the name of Rahab. Verse 5, a woman by the name of Ruth. In verse 6, he mentions a woman that we know as Bathsheba, but Matthew doesn't even mention her name just by as the wife of Uriah. We'll do that in a second. And finally, he mentions Mary, who'd be the mother of Jesus. Now, let's understand who these people are in case you don't. Tamar, you can go to Genesis chapter 38 later, not right now. But in Genesis chapter 38, we're going to introduce this woman named Tamar. Tamar was connected to Judah. Jesus would come from the tribe of Judah. Now, Judah gave his oldest son to Tamar to marry. But when Judah's oldest son died and Tamar did not have any children, the passage was that the next child, so the second oldest, would take Tamar as his wife so that she would bear a child. Well, Judah's second child didn't want to fulfill his duties, and so he did not let Tamar conceive, and the second child eventually died. Well, Judah becomes so alarmed that he tells Tamar, look, this is his daughter-in-law. You go away until my third son comes of age, and when he comes of age, I'll give him to you so that you can bear a child. So Tamar decides to do this. And this sounds odd in our day and age, but this is how things work. Well, Tamar goes off to her, her own little town, own little place, and Judah's son, he, he grows up. But Judah decides he's not going to give his son, which he promised to Tamar, because he's scared that he's going to die as well. He, he thought Tamar had something wrong with her. He was killing off his children or his boys. Well, Genesis 38 says eventually Judah's wife dies. And after a period of time, he decides that he's going to go and find comfort in the arms of a prostitute. This is part of Jesus' family, by the way. So he goes to this town, and he comes across this prostitute. What he doesn't know is the prostitute is Tamar, his daughter-in-law, dressed in disguise as a prostitute, to which Judah has a relationship with her and bears twins. That's Tamar. She dressed like a prostitute. Now, you may remember Rahab because we went through the Joshua series. Rahab didn't dress like a prostitute. She was a full-blown prostitute. And yet here she is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Ruth, who's thought to be more noble than some of the other women mentioned, was actually a Moabite. And to be a Moabite meant that Ruth's ancestry was tied to Lot's relationship with his daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we come to Bathsheba, who Matthew doesn't even mention there in verse 6 by name, 
He said he refers to her as by the wife of Uriah. You have this other event in which there's a scandal between David and Bathsheba, which David sees her bathing, and then he commits the act of adultery that leads to the act of murder, leading to the eventual birth of Solomon. Finally, you come to Mary, and we think, oh, finally, a ray of hope. But we have to remember Mary. Mary wasn't married to Joseph at this moment in time. She became pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And yet she's going to give birth to Charles. So she's going through her own ridicule and judgment. The five women that Matthew mentions in the genealogy of Christ, this family tree of Christ, all of them have some type of sexual misconduct attached to them. And yet these are the names that Matthew drops. Not only does he use these five women, but outside of Mary, all these women were not Jewish. Which Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, we may not think that's a big idea, but none of these women were Jewish except Mary. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites, to which the people of Israel were told, commanded, do not mingle with these people and do not intermarry with these people. Yet here they are in the family of Jesus. Ruth, as I already mentioned, was a Moabite. And Moabites were forbidden to be a part of Israel's assembly, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Bathsheba, though she was a Jew, was married to Uriah. Uriah was a Hittite. And so for Bathsheba to marry Uriah the Hittite would mean that she turned away from her Jewish ancestry and took on the Hittite's way, uh, way of life. And let's not just pick on the women, because there are men in here as well. Abraham, well, he's a liar. Judah sold his brother into slavery and then lied to his dad about it, plus his incident with Tamar. David was an adulterer and murderer. Solomon practiced polygamy and idolatry. Hezekiah was prideful. Rehoboam, Abijah, and Ahaz were wicked kings that led Israel away from God. Matter of fact, in 2 Kings chapter 16, King Ahaz built an altar in Jerusalem that's to mirror the altar in Damascus because he wants the people of God to begin practicing idolatry. And one commentator writes that the theological intent of the chronicler is to show that Ahaz's religious sin made him the worst king in the history of Judah, and as a result, Yahweh punished him by handing him into the hands of his enemies. Yet Ahaz did not repent, but turned to the gods of his enemies. This is the family tree of Jesus. And so the family tree of Jesus makes my family look pretty normal, even with our red gravy. I'm serious. So if you think there's something in your family or something in your life that can keep you from being a part of Jesus's family, you just have to read the genealogy of Jesus Christ. His family's pretty messed up too. Yet what we see is Jesus was born at the right time. He came from the right family line, and it was all a part of God's beautiful design. God set this up, and he used sinners to bring a sinless Messiah into the world. And there's some things we can learn about just this genealogy. First, if the Bible was made up, then Matthew could have cleaned this up. We believe that the Bible is guided and directed by the Spirit. The Spirit gave the words for Matthew. And so if it wasn't guided by the, the Word of God, and this wasn't exactly what God wanted, then Matthew, sitting down as he's writing out to Jewish people, could have cleaned this up. Because what is Matthew trying to do? He wants the Jewish people, his Jewish brothers, to know Jesus is the Christ. 
And so if I'm trying to present somebody, I'm not going to present their flaws. Now, you should meet, no, I won't say you because I don't want to get in trouble later, but you should meet so-and-so, and then I start talking about their flaws. I want to present the best of them. Yet Matthew, he presents Jesus as the Christ, but then he goes through and he says, look, this is his family. This is where he come from. One, so the Jewish people understand, but he doesn't hide any punches. And the reason I say that is that we can have faith in this word. God didn't throw anything out to hide the sinful nature of people and the sinful nature of where Jesus came from. And what it helps us today is we should not be ashamed to say Merry Christmas. We should not be ashamed to tell people the reason for the season is Christ. His name is in the season. We should not be ashamed to share our faith. God held no punches to keep us from becoming his children. We should not be ashamed about what this Bible says and who we are now because of Jesus Christ. This is why we need Christ and this is why we need to share Christ. The second thing we see just in this genealogy is our past does not define us. Look at Jesus' past family. Look at the mess they are. But that didn't define who Jesus was. Yes, he was the Son of God. Yes, he was God in the flesh. Yes, he was 100% God, 100% man. But it did not define what he did in his life. Yet there's times in our life we allow our regrets of our past to define how we're going to live in our present. That's what Satan wants to do. Satan is very good about reminding you and me about how we failed in our past so we can't live in our victory in the present. Yet the Bible says that we don't have to live in our regrets, but we're to live in rejoicing. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. <clears throat> because when we rejoice that our past and our past sins don't define us today, we take the focus off of ourselves. Instead, we're focusing on God because that's who we're rejoicing in, what he has done and how he has changed us. And that I'm not defined by this. Jesus' family tree is plagued by sin, but that didn't define Jesus, and it ultimately didn't define his family. Rahab, prostitute, yet in Hebrews chapter 11, she's mentioned as a woman of faith. And the cool thing that Matthew does through his genealogy is it's in three clumps, verses 2 through 6, verses 6 through 11, and verses 12 through 16, three clumps. In verse 2 through 6, we see... God lifting his people up. As it goes from Abraham to David, and they become the nation that God intended them to be, to be in the place where God wanted them to be in the promised land. But then in verse 6 through 11, we see God's people falling into sin, and they fall down. Verses 12 through 16, what does God do? He steps in to a sinful world and lifts God's people back up through his son, Jesus Christ. And this, isn't this how life is? that we have ups and downs as well. We have these moments where we're like, kumbaya, my Lord, you're awesome, we praise you. And we have other moments where we're just so desperate for God to do something. We're down in the dumps, we're feeling regret over the things we've done. And then God steps in, and what does he do? He lifts us back up. This is how God works in our life. As he continues to move and now allowing our sin to define us because the way God defines us now as children of his is we belong to him and we're heirs to his eternal kingdom. 
The Bible says that God has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west, which is a plan words, meaning God looks at you, even though you may still struggle with sin just like I do, but God looks at you not in your sin, but in Christ, in his perfection. So when Satan tries to remind you of all the things you've done wrong, you just remind Satan that I am found in Christ, I am covered by his blood, and I have the righteousness of Christ over me. And that's how the Holy Father sees me. I'm not defined by my past. I'm defined who I presently am found in and who I'm futurely going to be with. That's the genealogy. That's the message of Christmas. Because it's not where we have been which define us, but who we presently belong to and where we are going. The other thing we see just in this genealogy is Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came from sinners but was without sin, and Jesus came for sinners. And he had to remind the Jewish people of this throughout his ministry. In Matthew 9, verse 13, he says, For I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And so what Matthew does in his genealogy is he doesn't hide the fact that there's sin within the family of God's tree. He doesn't hide that. Matter of fact, Matthew does another thing very odd. In this genealogy, he mentions five women and how he ends his gospel to the Jewish people is that the women are once again the focus. They're the very first witnesses that arrive at the, at the empty tomb on Easter morning. And so Matthew is letting people know that Jesus came for sinners. He came for all people, which is what Luke does through his genealogy. It's just a little easier to see. Jesus came for everyone to save everyone. This is Christmas. Why is it important? Because Jesus offers a new beginning. This is how Matthew begins the book of genealogy, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings of Christ. This is what Christmas celebrates. That I can begin fresh and new. And I know we, we tend to put this on New Year's. You know, I'm going to start the new year in a new way, but this is what Christmas is for. It's remind us that I can begin fresh and new. I can live out what the Bible says. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's Christmas. I am new in Christ. And I don't know where everybody is this morning. But one thing I do know is God wants everyone to accept this gift that we call Christmas. And the Bible says when I understand that I am a sinner that I have things in my life that I'm not proud of, that's sin, and that's keeping me from a relationship with God. And when I understand that and I admit that to a holy God, I am a sinner, and I can't do anything about my sin problem. But we tell God, I believe that Jesus Christ was your son who came to this earth, who died on the cross for my sins, and rose again that I could be forgiven. The Bible says, when I believe that in my heart, that God loves me that much and Jesus did what the Bible says he did. And I confess it with my mouth, meaning I have to let it be known. I will be saved and I will be completely forgiven. You may be here this morning and that's exactly what you need to do this morning so you can celebrate Christmas. You may be here this morning and Satan's trying to keep you in your regrets and you need to remind Satan, I don't live in my past. I live in who I'm found in today. I'm a new creation in Christ. And maybe you just need to worship God and come and kneel before the Father and repent because that's what you've been focusing on. We're going to come this time of invitation. I'm going to ask Jackson to come up and lead us.
If you need to accept Jesus Christ, I'm going to invite you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. You tell me how to do that. If you just need to turn your focus from your regrets to rejoicing, maybe you need to come kneel before the Father and ask God to help you do that. No one in here is perfect. We all need Jesus, and that's why we come to celebrate this time of year. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Christmas. Lord, thank you that your family was a mess, and your family is still a mess today. There's not a person in this room that is perfect and has it all together. Lord, thank you that you, you forgive us completely. You declare us your children. And Father, I pray for those here this morning who do not know you as their Lord and Savior, they are not your child, that they would have the courage to walk down the aisle and let it be known that they want to be saved. But I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ to know it's so easy just to live in the past. Father, help us to let go of that and those chains that may be weighing us down and being who you've created us to be in that new creation. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. And as we come this time of invitation, you alone be glorified. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand, I invite you to sing.